We're going to return to our study of the book of Acts this morning, chapter 15. But before we go there, I would like you to turn in your Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Galatians, chapter 1. A well-known evangelist was once asked how he could justify the theological diversity of those who were participating in his evangelistic services. They worked with all kinds of churches and Christians. They worked with the Roman Catholics, conservative Christians, as well as liberal churches. Uh, and understanding the the vast differences between the churches and his own organization, he replied, evangelism is about the only word we can unite on. Our methods would be different, and there would be debates over even the message sometimes, but there's no debate over the fact that we need to evangelize. And I stop and think, disagreement over methods is one thing, Disagreement over the message? How can that be? You see, if the message is corrupted, what's the point in evangelizing? If the message is corrupted, where is the good news that we're to take to the world? You see, there's only one gospel. And it is the one gospel that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Another gospel is not a gospel at all. And that's what the Apostle Paul speaks of here in the book of Galatians. As I said last week, studying Acts 15, we really need to read the book of Galatians because it, it occurred at the same time and deals with the same basic issue, and that is the perversion of the gospel. Beginning in verse 6, notice what Paul says. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. And the Greek words that are used there, one means another of a different kind, and uh, another word for another means another of the same kind. Well, he says it's not another of the same kind, it's another of a different kind altogether. This is not the gospel. And then he adds this warning, but even, oh no, he said, uh, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than, than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And then for the sake of emphasis, he repeats the same thing in verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that what you have received, let him be accursed. Well, this is exactly what was happening in the book of Acts. And you can turn there now to Acts 15. This is what was happening in the church at Antioch. Some false teachers had come into the church and they were going about preaching a perverted gospel, which Paul says is not the gospel at all. 
in verse 1 of chapter 15, that tells us that certain men came down from Judea. That means they came down from the church in Jerusalem. They came to the church in Antioch. It's about 250 miles away. No short distance for them especially. But this was the church in which Paul and Barnabas had been ministering for some time. It was the same church that sent them out on their first missionary journey up to uh, southern Galatia, where they preached the gospel there, and sinners, both Jews and Gentiles, were converted. They were being saved, and churches were established. Uh, things were going very well. Uh, the, the, the gospel was spreading. But it wasn't without opposition, though. Satan doesn't lightly lose one of his subjects. As you remember, Apollyon said to Pilgrim when he found him on the way traveling to the celestial city, I perceive that you were one of mine and no king will thus lightly lose one of his subjects. Neither will I lose thee. And Satan doesn't like that when he sees people converted to Christ. And so he, being behind it all, I'm sure, brought about persecution wherever they went. They were often chased out of one city and followed by their persecutors into the next. In one of the cities, the city of Lystra, Paul was actually stoned, dragged out of the city and left for dead. They thought he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around his beaten and bruised and bloodied body, he rose up. And went back into the city and the next day they went on to Derby and uh, kept, kept with the work. And you talk about perseverance. Here's perseverance for you. They went on. And then in chapter 14, it says, and when he had preached the gospel to that city, that is Derby, he made many disciples, they made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. These were the cities they had previously visited. And now they're coming and they're strengthening the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, to persevere. But then they add this caution. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. You can imagine when he showed up the next time and he's beaten probably beyond recognition. And he tells them, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. That might give them a pause and wonder what? Have we gotten into? And persecution is a way to drive people away from following Christ. Is this the happiness you promised? It's not very happy. I think I'll go back. I had better time back where I used to be. And so the Satan can use that, can't he? Well, when they returned from their mission trip, they came back to the church in Antioch and they reported to the church, all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. It must have been some kind of mission report. A great rejoicing. We love mission reports. We love when men like David Vaughn comes and tells us what God's doing and how the, the gospel is spreading. Well, it was spreading and the Gentiles were believing. Uh, and it says there was great rejoicing. And, and we're told that Paul and Barnabas stayed there a long time. And things seem to be going very well. Then we read here in chapter 15 that these certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless 
you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's very emphatic language, isn't it? Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Like Jesus when He says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Well, they're saying unless he's circumcised and follows the the laws of Moses, he can't be saved. Uh, What a a message now they're being taught. And because of this, Paul and Barnabas, it says, had no small dissension and dispute with them. We see that in verse 2. Therefore, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. uh, And so they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem. And so there was this dissension. It was a, the issue wasn't resolved, and, and probably no greater apologist than the Apostle Paul, who was unable to convince these men. And they certainly couldn't simply agree to disagree over such, a, such an important matter. There are some doctrines of which we may be ignorant, and even be wrong and still go to heaven. Think of the book of Revelation. We may come up with all kinds of different ideas, but you can still be a Christian and have different views on certain things in the book of Revelation. But the issue that was raised here in the church of Antioch was so important that to be ignorant or mistaken or wrong about this would be on the road to destruction. The issue had to do with the great doctrine of justification by faith alone, which Martin Luther called the, the, the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. You see, if you get this one wrong, it doesn't really matter what else you're right about. Well, what were these false teachers trying to teach? And they say very plainly, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. And what they were doing, in essence, as we said last week, was they were adding works to salvation, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In this instance, they were adding the requirement of circumcision. These new Gentile believers, uh, they were teaching they needed to be circumcised if they were to be saved. They're, They're rejoicing about these conversions And they come along and they say, whoa, not so fast. You need to be circumcised if you really want to be saved. Mm, That's what they were teaching. And that's what the doctrine of justification by faith deals with. It says it's by faith alone in Christ alone that we're saved and nothing else. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No, could my tears forever flow? All for sin cannot atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And when it came to the defense of the gospel, the Apostle Paul pulled no punches. Read the book of Galatians and you see he takes the gloves off. He's not going to dilly-dally around with this one. He's going right for it. Because these men who were teaching these things weren't just sincere good men Uh, that we just have a little disagreement with. No, they were teaching a false gospel. But Paul was able to refute them. Uh, One of the commentators, John Dick, said that their arguments were more powerful than those of their opponents. It is impossible to doubt 
But controversies, both in religion and in politics, are not always determined by superior evidence, but are often prolonged by pride and obstinacy, by ignorance and prejudice. No matter what Paul had to say or Barnabas had to say, these men weren't budging. And so that's why it says in verse 2 that the church, they, the church in Antioch, determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go with, go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now, there are at least two very good reasons why they should do this, go there. Uh, there are probably more, but there's two good reasons they should go up to Jerusalem. You see, these false teachers, they came from the church in Jerusalem. Now, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said that certain men came from James, the brother of the Lord. He was one of the leaders at the church of Jerusalem. Uh, this at least implied that their teaching and requirement for circumcision had the sanction of the mother church in Jerusalem. Now, they didn't, as they had claimed. They didn't have that uh, imprimatur. They didn't have their the approval of the church in, in Jerusalem. But somehow they made them think that they did. And again, it's 250 miles away. They couldn't just pick up a phone and uh, say, hey, we've got this, these guys teaching this. Is that what you're really teaching? It wasn't that kind of communication. And they wanted to settle, and the, the issue had become so big. And the issue had influenced so many people uh, that they needed to deal with this. This was serious. And so they needed to go right to the source. Uh, I like the way Kurt Daniels puts it in his in his way, he said, yeah, it'd be like you're sitting out in your front yard and some little boy comes up and sticks his tongue out at you and throws a rock through your window and breaks the window. Well, what do you do? Well, you grab him and you, by the arm and you take him. You better be careful doing that nowadays. But you grab him by the arm and you take him right to his house and knock on the door and say, he just threw a rock through my window. And that's what they're doing. They're going right back to the source. We're going to Jerusalem. You came from Jerusalem. We're going to take you back to Jerusalem and find out and get to the bottom of all of this. But the second reason is the church in Jerusalem is where the apostles resided. The apostles carried a unique authority in the church. They were the foundation stones of the church built upon the apostles and the prophets. Paul himself was an apostle and he had that same authority as the rest of the apostles. But it looks like if these false teachers were being honest and accurate, which we know they weren't, there was a division among even the apostles. Paul was saying one thing, but there's other apostles supposedly saying something else. Is there a division? Is there a fracture in the church in the very uh, apostolic unity? Well, the issue needed to be settled and it needed to be settled once and for all. So they, they moved up. To, or they went on up to Jerusalem. Now, by the way, this is one of the major differences between this council in Jerusalem and all other church councils that followed uh, throughout church history to this very day. It had the presence of apostles. And that changes a lot, a whole lot about the nature of this particular council. They carried the authority of Jesus Christ himself. If the apostle said it, then you need to follow it. Now, it doesn't mean an apostle couldn't be wrong, as we'll see in a moment. They, 
they were, could be very wrong about things. But here they were being guided in this way and, and the Holy Spirit was guiding them. Uh, they carried the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Now we come this morning to the council itself found in verses 6 through 21. And uh, would you follow with me as I read those verses? Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us uh, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So the Lord does all things. Uh, says the Lord does all things known to God from eternity are all of his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, I'm going to stop right there. I know there's a little bit more in that context, but it's actually relating to another theme that we'll, we'll look at at another time. Um, but uh, but uh, so here's the council itself. It tells us that it consisted of both apostles and elders. Uh, verse 7 tells us that they allowed for a time of debate and discussion, which is generally the right thing to do. Um, did they let the Pharisees stand up and give their point of view? Uh, I would say they probably did, but if they did, I'm sure they gave them enough rope to hang themselves. Uh, let them speak and then refute the heck out of them. <laughs> I'm sure that's what they go ahead and say what you're going to say. And then Paul stands up or Peter stands up and they refute them. Uh, one of the qualifications of an elder is that he must hold fast the faithful word that he's been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. You see, there's a lot of talk and, and, and action in our day of silencing and censoring purveyors of misinformation and disinformation and a new one I heard the other day, malinformation. Um, why not let them talk or write their articles and then refute them? 
Just refute them. That's what you need to do. Show where they're wrong. Show what's right. Refute them if they can. Well, after the discussion and debate, we have these three sets of witnesses. Uh, I suppose you can call them witnesses who do just that. They, they refute these false teachers. These three sets are first Peter stands and then Paul and Barnabas together uh, say a few words and, and then finally James. Now, this is all a, a very summary fashion of the whole thing that transpired. Uh, it may have gone on for hours and hours. Who knows? Uh, but this is just a small part of what went on. Just the overview, we'd say. Uh, but uh, but these three sets of witnesses stand up and uh, they... Uh, uh, I think it was important, though, for these three sets of witnesses uh, to do this. Uh, Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and James. And it's interesting that three of the four witnesses had at one time been caught up in some degree with the error of these false teachers. Three of these men. Peter, Barnabas, and James. In fact, Paul writes of this in his epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 2. He said, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, Paul said, because he he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James... These men came from the church in Jerusalem before these men came from James. He's talking about the same men we read of here in chapter 15. Uh, Peter, he said, would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. That's what these men were called of the circumcision. Uh, They were also called Judaizers at a later date, but uh, they're, they're of the circumcision And he says, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. Peter did this and the others started following suit and and following his bad example. And then he says, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. How could good men like that be carried away with such hypocrisy? This was wrong. Paul knew it. He spotted it. He said, this is wrong. And I rebuked Peter in front of everybody because he was wrong. And because he had such an influence on these others. This wasn't a matter that you go to your brother, you and him, and you tell him this fault between you and him. No, this is something that affected the whole church and it needed to be brought out that way. He said, when I saw they weren't straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? And so he just goes on and explains the Gospel to Peter and how they're saved the same way we are and so forth. God has saved them and you're now you're, you're treating them like they're not even brothers in Christ? It wasn't a matter of conviction. It was a matter of fear. Peter was afraid. These brothers came down from Jerusalem and, and they're saying these things and oh no, it just, it just caught them off guard and they weren't ready for it and they fell to their fear. And so, I believe it was good for these three men to speak up. And what they had to say now, when they're speaking up, they've come to their right mind in this thing. There's no, there's no fogginess. There, there's no waffling here. They are very convinced Paul was used by God to rebuke Peter 
And Peter saw that he was wrong and repented. And Barnabas and James, all of them. And so here we have, first of all, Peter. Verses 7 through 11, Peter stood up and and uh, he said uh, uh, that you know how that by my mouth God uh, saved the Gentiles. And he's speaking of that whole matter of Cornelius. He reminds him how God had chose him to take the gospel to the, to the Gentiles, namely to Corn- the house of Cornelius. And then in Acts 10, uh, when he's there at the house of Cornelius and he's preaching the gospel and he's speaking of Christ and his death and his resurrection and to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Well, Paul couldn't see their hearts. He couldn't see if they had faith. He couldn't see if they were really believing, if they're really trusting. But that's what he lays out. Here's the requirement. Whoever believes in him Trust in Christ, their sins will be forgiven. And so he couldn't see, but God, he says, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Verse 8. Just as he did to us. God poured out the Holy Spirit. Remember how they were so amazed. God has granted them repentance. How do you know? He's given them the Spirit. They've been filled with the Spirit. They, they spoke in tongues or whatever they, the, the signs were at that time. They were saved. And so God knows. He, he made no distinction, verse 9. That's an important thing. He made no distinction between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. And so He's saying they were saved by faith. Faith alone. They weren't circumcised. How do we know they were saved? The Holy Spirit came down upon them. God was giving this evidence that He had accepted them. That they were now His people. They were then baptized and brought into the membership and fellowship of the church. They were saved apart from circumcision. And that's His, that's his point. They were saved. They had the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. It's like baptism. How do we know baptism doesn't save you? Well, one of the reasons, and I wouldn't put it at the top of the list, but a a very good reason is that there are some who have been saved who were never baptized. The thief on the cross. He was saved and he wasn't baptized. Those who insist that baptism is a necessity to be saved. You must be baptized in order to be saved. Well, what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. He put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. It's very important. And that's what Peter is saying. They weren't Circumcised and yet they're saved. Therefore, God saves those who aren't circumcised. I remember speaking to a, a former Church of Christ man. I'd asked him the question about his baptism and, and what, what stock he was putting in his baptism. <clears throat> I said, before you baptize, you're baptized, you believed in Jesus, right? Yes. <clears throat> before you went under the water, did you still have your sins? 
Yes. When you came up out of the water, did you have your sins? No. Then you're saying your baptism saved you, not your faith in Christ. And see, Peter is pointing out, they're saved by faith. Faith alone, no circumcision, no ceremonial law-keeping. They're saved by simple faith in Jesus Christ alone. In verse 10, Peter says, Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? The yoke they were putting was the law of God. These false teachers were saying that if you're going to be saved, you need to keep the law. Paul makes the argument in the book of Galatians, also in Romans and other places, that if you're going to make law-keeping a requirement, then guess what? You have to keep all of it. All of it. Every bit of it. You break it at one point, you've broken them all. By the works of the law, he says, no flesh will be justified in his sight. That's a burden that no one can bear. So he's asking them very simply, why are you putting that yoke on them that you couldn't handle and they can't handle? None of us can handle because no one can keep the law of God perfectly. And then Peter sums it all up with this crystal clear statement of faith. Verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now notice how Peter puts this. He, he, he's not saying that they're saved in the same way we are, but we're saved in the same way they are. And there's a difference there. Because see, the, the Judaizers say, yes, they need to be saved the same way we are. And they were really trusting not only Christ, but they were trusting in the circumcision. They need to be like us. Paul, uh, Peter says, no, we are saved the same way they are. That's a very humbling thing for this Jew to say. We're saved like these Gentiles. These Gentile dogs are saved. How are they saved? By faith. We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner. There's simple faith in Christ. Trusting in Christ alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. By faith alone, they're saved. Circumcision can't save you. They're saved and they're not circumcised. They are saved by faith alone. And that's exactly how we are saved. Circumcision doesn't mean a thing as far as our standing before God. And neither does anything else you can bring up. Your, your church membership or your baptism or, or your good works of any kind and all the kinds. How many good works that does not affect your standing before God. You see, the Pharisee is saved the same way that publican is saved. <laughs> Think of that Pharisee standing there uh, showing his, his glory and all of his good works. I thank you I've not done this. I've kept this law and done that. Tithes and all those things. No, Mr. Pharisee, if you want to be saved, you've got to be saved the same way as that publican you're despising over there. He's crying out to God, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The high churchman, the drunkard, they're saved in the same way. The drunkard by faith alone in Christ alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. 
Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The same way. And then Paul and Barnabas. They stand up and it says all the multitude kept silent and listened to Paul and Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Now, it's a very brief statement of what they said, but the main point of it is that God worked these many miracles and these wonders through them among the Gentiles. Now, why would God do that? Why would God who he's the only one who can do these miracles. Remember, Nicodemus recognized that with Jesus. We know no one can do these things that you do unless they're sent by God. Well, in chapter 14, it tells us why God would bless this in such a way and that he was in it. In chapter 14, verse 3, says the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done at their hands. These Gentiles are being converted. God was bearing witness. It was his stamp of approval. That's what was being done. And so that is another argument. God saves these Gentiles. He really did save them. And he was bearing witness that he was by these many miracles. And then we come to James, and this is James, not the apostle. He's already been martyred for the Lord. This is James, the brother of the Lord. Uh, he was saved after the Lord's resurrection, and he rose to became, become one of the, the leaders, if not the leader, in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, and he addresses not only the main issue of salvation, but these other Secondary issues, I would call them. Uh, we'll look at those at another time. But uh, he begins in verse 14 and he says, um, Men and brethren, uh, Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out a, na- out a people, uh, take out of them a people for his name. So he's acknowledging what Peter is saying. God is saving the Gentiles. He's bringing them out as a people for his name. This was reserved before exclusively to the Israelites. They were the people of God's choice, the people for His name. Now it's Gentiles, a people for His name. And so, uh, he, he says that God was saving them, uh, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. Verse 15, just as it is written, so now he's going to the Scriptures. We've heard from Peter. We've heard from Barnabas and Paul. <clears throat> now, we, <clears throat> excuse me, now we need to go to the Scriptures. How does this line up with the Scriptures? And he says that the words of the prophets agree with this. What do the Scriptures have to say about this? This is a very important thing in any kind of counsel, any kind of a problem, any kind of an issue, whether it's a personal issue or a church-related issue. We always need to go to the Scriptures. The London Confession, I love chapter 1 on the Scripture. And verse uh, the, the ninth paragraph is probably my favorite. It just kind of sums it all up. It says, The Supreme Judge, <clears throat> by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and of private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be none other 
than the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. It all comes back to what does the Bible say? And that's what he's saying. He says, the Scriptures agree with this. He's talking about God calling out a people for His own self, for His own namesake. Do we find that in the Old Testament? Well, the conversion of the Gentiles, he shows us, was foretold in the New, in the Old Testament, verse 17. Uh, uh, where, says, uh, where it says, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So there it is. He speaks of the, the salvation of the Gentiles. Uh, this, though, the salvation of the Gentiles, notice, is in consequence of what God has done in verse 16 regarding the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Now, so what he's saying is, is I'm going to do this so that this will happen. What's he going to do? I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, so that the Gentiles will be brought in to the kingdom, into my, my house. Now, dispensationalists argue that this is yet to be fulfilled in some future millennium, this rebuilding of the tabernacle of David that had fallen down. But notice that would completely destroy James's, or James's argument here. He would destroy it. He would have no argument. Oh, wait a minute. That's not happened yet. That's not happened. Let's wait till that happens because he's, I'm going to make this happen so that this will happen. I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David so that the Gentiles will come in. No, you see, James's argument is that the tabernacle that was fallen down has been rebuilt. It was accomplished, first of all, in the resurrection of Christ, the son of David, raised from the dead. God has rebuilt his temple, which is the church. The church is the temple of God. It's the house of God. It's the tabernacle of David. And when the Gentiles seek the Lord, they are added to his church, his temple. They're part of God's household. Uh, just real quickly, I'm sorry, I'll... Just go here and then we'll be done. But in, in Ephesians chapter 2, just so you see what Paul says about this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. And he's speaking to those Gentiles who were, uh, in verse 11, he says, Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh. You see, these these Judaizers, they call you the uncircumcised. But he's going to show that you've been brought into God's kingdom. You who are far off have been brought near. And then he brings it to a conclusion here in verse 19. Now, therefore, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the prophets, apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So 
what he's saying here is that God has done this work. It was prophesied in Amos long ago. He was going to come and rebuild the tabernacle of David and so that the Gentiles would be brought in. And now we have the church consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. He takes of the two, Jew and Gentile, and he makes one new man and he puts them together in the same building, the temple of God. Then he says in verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. This wasn't some afterthought of the God's mind. This was his plan. He was working according to his eternal plan. And it has been his plan from all eternity to save a people for himself, consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. And James is telling these Jews are saying, you need to become Jews. No, God's going to save Jews and Gentiles and bring them together. He's not going to make them Jews. It's going to be one new house, new building. This is what God has been doing, James says. What a great privilege this is to be part of that plan. When you think of us being Gentiles, we're not some offshoot. This is God's plan. God's plan is to have Jews and Gentiles together. And right now it's the Gentiles who are mostly coming into His kingdom Perhaps one day there will be a time when He brings Jews into His kingdom more and more. But it is a church that consists of Jews and Gentiles. And circumcision means nothing. It doesn't mean you're in a higher place. You you get to enter into the Holy of Holies uh, while the uncircumcision have to stay out in the outer courts. No, you're right here in the building with Him. You, by Christ, have this great privilege of entering into the Holy of Holies. What a great privilege. How did you get this privilege? We didn't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. You know what you had to do? You had to put your faith and your trust in a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David. You had to put your faith and trust in Him. Faith alone. Nothing else. You didn't have to go and do this. You didn't have to be circumcised. You didn't have to... Go to this uh, class for such a long time and then finally you'll be admitted in. It's by simple faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Resting, receiving and resting in Christ alone. Again, we sang, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. It's by faith in Christ. What He has done. That's how we're part of this. Children, maybe you think you need to do something to be a Christian. Maybe you're not old enough. God said, well, you need you have to believe in Christ, but you have to be old enough. No, you come just as you are right now. You say, well, why, don't I have to do this? Don't I have to do that? Don't I have to read my Bible so many times and pray so many times? No, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's the promise of God. That's the promise from Scripture. Don't let anybody tell you you have to do something else to become a Christian. Now, it'll change your life completely. And you'll be doing things you never thought you'd do. But you won't be doing it so that you can become a Christian, but because you are a Christian. You'll want to do things. You want to love God more. You want to love your parents more. You want to love your neighbor more. You want to show the world that you know and love Jesus. You'll want to do things, but that's the consequence of coming to Christ. That's what happens after you become a Christian. 
You believe on Him. You trust Him. You realize you can do nothing to save yourself. You can do what the Pharisees said and you can go get circumcised. That's not going to save you. That's not going to make you even one bit better. All you need to do is believe. Believe on Him. Trust in Him. Who He is. He's the Son of God. And what He has done, He came to this earth to live a perfect life that we could never live. And He died on the cross as our substitute in our place so that we might not be punished for our sins because He was already punished for them when He hung upon the cross. And so He tells us to believe in Him. And you see, when you do that, only God receives the glory. These Pharisees were saying circumcision, they were getting part of the glory. They thought, well, see what we had to do? We did this and they didn't. We're better than they are. We're closer to God. We're more right with God than they are. This way of salvation says, nope. Jesus did it all. All to Him I owe. Jesus paid it all. And you need to believe on Him to be saved. Let's pray.